You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Eyes and ears to the front of the class. This is Be Real, a movie-reviewing, reappraising, genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name's Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Do you still get a back-to-school restlessness at all? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a weird feeling this year uh, with how fraught you know, go, the just notion of going back to school has been for so many Americans. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm also friendly with a lot of public school teachers. Right. Uh, so it's been weird to see that all play out. Luckily, though, it does seem like a lot of, at least the people that I know, um, their years are being either pushed back or they're being allowed to teach remotely, which is, of course, no small feat, uh, but better than them being in the room. So we decided to do a back-to-school movie episode, um, and we kind of found our way to this category of uh, teachers save the students drama, and unintentionally are all kind of anchored around like the late '80s, early '90s, and the one that's newer, Precious, is set in those in that time span. Um, so yeah, you definitely know some of the tropes of the inspirational teacher drama but today we're going to be talking about stand and deliver lean on me dangerous minds and precious we're also really excited today to have two representatives of black teacher project on the show we've got the founder and director dr misha mosley and we have kia walton who teaches sixth grade math in oakland and came through the first cohort of the program. And Black Teacher Project is a nonprofit that seeks to sustain and develop black educators, um, help them do their job better, feel more inspired, have increased solidarity if they're already in the classroom, and then also help aspiring educators make it through a pipeline that is well biased against them sometimes. It's an awesome nonprofit. I would tell you to look into it, um, whether you're an educator or not. Um, and it was great to have them on the show because I feel like when Hollywood gets a hold of these stories, uh, they often become white savior stories. And then they often just become sort of like two-dimensional inspirational dramas in general. And it was great to talk to two people who uh, know a lot about the other dimensions that are often hidden in these movies. So that's coming up. I hope you enjoy it. As always, Be Real is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, the feed of which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your shows. We always appreciate a kind rating or comment for our program or our sibling shows like The Discourse, The Fourth Wall, Deep Focus, Indie Beat, and more. Thanks for listening. So Chance, shall we start in 1988, Stand and Deliver? Yeah, I guess I'm interested maybe in sort of tracing this this history just a little more though. I feel like one of the first waves of these movies comes out of like the late 50s and early 60s um, at a time when people are really interested in like, what are the youth up to in the age of Blackboard Jungle and even Miracle Worker with Anne Bancroft? I mean, obviously that's a, a story of Helen Keller that is dated far before. Um, and To Sir With Love um, seems like one of the first Hollywood waves of like, what can a teacher do in a time when the kids are so mysterious to us here in Hollywood. Um, and this kind of feels like the next wave of it. 
So certainly, yeah. Because you also have Dead Poets Society in this mix, even though that's set at a different setting. For sure, and that's a boarding school, and that's all. Yeah, that's in the the early nineties. Um, my parents also pointed out when we were watching Stand Deliver Together that Up the Down Staircase is also like a pretty good example. I have never seen that, uh, but maybe something we should check out from nineteen sixty seven. But yeah, let's start with Stand and Deliver eighty eight. Currently on Netflix, directed by Ramon Menendez. Absolutely. Uh, so, the Stand and Deliver follows the story of Jaime Escalante, a high school teacher who successfully inspired his dropout prone students to learn calculus and pass the AP exam um, in a high school that previously didn't even offer AP classes. A true story. These are all allegedly truth adjacent shall we say three of them claim to be based on a true story and four of them uh like have roots in real narratives edward james almost is our teacher uh in stand and deliver plays high man escalante as you said is quite a character you can i think you can really feel especially compared to these other ones that this this is a person who sort of like fashioned himself as an educator in a really interesting way. Stay awake as you're waking up. Wake up this morning, how are you? Bring toothpicks and pinch open your eyes. Can we talk about sex? We discuss sex, I have to give sexual homework. I wouldn't do that if I was you. I'd lose a finger, I won't be able to count to 10. At a tough school, someone had to take a stand, and someone did. Now the critics stand up and cheer for Stand and Deliver. Terrific, tremendous, gripping and compelling, more exciting than La Bamba. Almost gives a wonderful performance, declares Jack Crow, Newsweek. Enormously inspiring and very rewarding. Almost gives the first great performance of the year. Jeffrey Lyons, sneak preview, and Pat Collins. Yeah, he's somewhere between, like, Savior Educator and Serpico. Sure. You know, he's like he's prone to costumes. Yeah. You know, he has that like rigid moral backbone that like maybe gets him a little in trouble sometimes and also he'll just like shout and scream or just mumble anything uh, depending on his mood. I I wrote down that this is sort of like if the saint tried to teach a class. Val Kilmer's the saint. It's like sometimes you're just speaking so quietly you have no choice but to pay attention. But stand and deliver. So, yeah, I mean, he goes from being this teacher, like a, a high up person at like a technology computer company. And then for reasons that are never really discussed overtly, quits his job and decides to be an urban high school teacher. And from the moment he arrives, he like has this inflated sense of what he's going to do but i think what's interesting about this movie as compared to maybe the other ones is that he never really has the moment of oh my god can i do this like how do i like he goes in the same person in the first scene with them and introducing himself to him yelling at ets in the final scene it's true this movie does a thing that i'm sure feels false if you care about the about pedagogy but makes for good hollywood movies which is like the teacher wins over the class 
by virtue of their specific performativeness, by holding a stage. And by seeing the dispatchment of negative influences. Mm -hmm. I really like the directing in the first half of this movie. It feels very lived in. The opening shot on the LA River um, just kind of like lets you know that you are somewhere central in someone's mind, but you're also sort of like underground. And then you get the kind of long drive into the school. And I really honestly appreciate the way Ramon Menendez directs the front half of this movie because it's very easygoing. It really has that kind of episodic, a couple weeks are passing, maybe a day is passing. The purpose of this scene is just to get a laugh. Um, The purpose of this scene is just to see how he teaches them basic arithmetic and then escalates that. Um, there's not a lot of um, contrived drama at all. And also, he, I think he makes great use of um, a camera in the classroom. It kind of reminded me of what Peter Weir does in Dead Poet Society, which is just create like a small motion with like a little zoom pan of like your, you know, in the eyes of the student, their attention being held. Um, it's pretty compelling and also pretty easygoing. I think the movie definitely benefits, too, from you being unable to look away from almost mm-hmm. uh, in that. I mean, he it draws you in visually with that horrific haircut that he has. Yeah, that comb over. And then you just like can't look away because the second you adjust to that being a thing that exists, suddenly he's like wearing an apron and like a little hat, like a fry cook right. for seemingly no reason. Because he gave them apple pieces that were supposed to represent fractions or something. Right. I The themes he buys into in those little like those little goofs yeah. are really early on very, very good. It's true. I and I just really like too that, you know, there's a there's an interesting scene where Angel, the Lou Diamond Phillips, the the troublemaker the the troublemaker, um, as the movie kind of positions him. You know, that the night he comes to school after having been awake all night uh, getting high is not like this weird melodramatic low moment of like, Angel, you've betrayed everything we worked on in the first act of this movie. It's just played for a joke. He just shows up after everyone else looks at the board and goes, hey, teach, what's calculus? <laughs> and that's the end of the scene. Right. It's a good, um, this movie's not, uh, it's not overly concerned with mining drama uh, in the first half. And I think it's got a good script, too. I mean, some of the Escalante, like, the little weird holes he goes down in these, like, weird analogies he's making, these weird references that you're supposed to understand. Like, when he's really getting in that one student's face with, like, the fingers, with the trick of, like, you know, moving your finger around. If you do nine times eight, you move your finger eight spots, and that'll, like, give you, if you add up the two digits on each side of your two hands, that'll give you the answer. But just the way he's, like, whispering to him. And in every moment, he's, like, pulling somebody aside and being like, you got two girlfriends? Pick one. Tell me which one you like more. Mm -hmm. It's, like, it's these, like, funny little asides where he... He'll make someone uncomfortable and like push them in one direction or another. And it seems like the script has his back. On that note, I also like that this movie is about math. You're so used to seeing the tropes of these films being about learning English and the idea that if somebody can just learn to tell their story uh, in a self-invested way, that's what will save them. And it's really interesting that this 
movie centers on another subject, a more technical subject. Even though I will argue that by the time he starts teaching them calculus, the movie has zero idea how to teach you calculus. So it completely gives up on that. Yeah, I think the movie can teach you like basic addition and subtraction and like fractions and stuff. But I think once they get to calculus, that was one of the conversations I had with my mom after we watched this movie together was the fact that like, how do you visualize teaching calculus without killing like an audience member? (laughs) Yeah, that was I was, of course, going to ask you at some point, like, who do you think is the best educator, the most effective educator of these four? And I think that on a tangible level, without a doubt, it's Jaime Escalante. And yet on a feeling level, I don't know because I don't feel I was taught calculus. You know, that's kind of where the fakiness of the movie runs out. Well, that is also like the narrative tension, too, because what we build to is this sort of. I mean, lean on me-esque satisfaction of them like passing the test, hooray. But then this movie shifts into its awkward third gear or third act or whatever of, oh, maybe they cheated. And that's where the movie reaches for a larger moral question of what are these standardized tests doing to these communities? And is it possible that though he's given them some calculus skills that Jaime is actually not a very good teacher? I mean, two interesting questions, but I don't know that this movie's ready to answer them. Yeah. Cause I don't think it's reaching for that question. The intention is not a theme intention. The intention to borrow your gear thing is to shift wildly into fourth and fifth and finish the movie. <laughs> Because part of what I like right. so much is that we're doesn't feel like we're headed, headed anywhere, you know? And Kia talks about right. this. We're like, all these movies, what feels uh, wrong about them to her as a teacher is that they all just, like, resolve as the year gets to the end. And unfortunately, that's what the movie has to do. So it's just like, oh, my God, what if they cheated? And this is, of course, based in, in real life. So it does raise interesting questions. But here it just feels like a panic move toward plot. Yeah. What well, also seems like the movie goes for that easy kind of, you know, late 80s, early 90s knee jerk reaction racism that's like easy to spot. So it's like, of course, these kids have been screwed over by the system, you know, and it, it doesn't really look at the fact that having this like this monoculture through this one teacher giving you life lessons and math lessons like maybe isn't the healthiest way ultimately to learn Hmm. um parenthetical aside here weird personal connection to this movie for me is that both my parents worked at ets at the time not only that this scandal happened but that this movie came out and it was like a pr nightmare apparently for both those periods wow Um, yeah i got into an interesting conversation with my mom about how I mean, ETS was simply reacting to the data. Mm. Like they had no, they to them, they had no idea what was going on with this guy. Of course, they like didn't send investigators or anything. This was all like written correspondence. They didn't but of send course, two not guys. as interesting. They didn't send two guys who looked like Agent Johnson and Agent Johnson from Die Hard. They did not. Uh, I don't know that ETS has people who have that job so even confusing um but yeah i mean they just sent them a basically a letter back saying that like these 
results are questionable and to validate them, it would make sense to retake the test before colleges would automatically honor the credit. Mm. It was not like they were all in a room together uh, as if they were some sort of like test cops. So yeah, Andy Garcia and Riff Hutton show up and they're just so much like FBI agents. Well, that's where I... And that's where I feel like this movie is begging those questions because otherwise you would like cast two white guys in the in those roles. But like the movie wants to say something larger about a system or education or something having it be clear that Andy Garcia is Latino uh, and Riff Hutton, his partner, is obviously black. You know, because then they get to have that scene where he's like, it's racist. And Andy Garcia is like, how dare you even throw that accusation out, sir? Mm -hmm. Which is, of course, how that scene is probably the most interesting scene in the movie in that here's this public school teacher raising all these really interesting questions, literally just looking to review the data. And every time he says anything, they're like, why are you getting so upset? Like, sir, you need to calm down. Like, why are you threatening us? Mm hmm. I think Lou Diamond Phillips is really good in this movie. Um, he, this is, I think, right after La Bamba. Yeah, that was the previous year. So it's kind of the height. And same year as Young Guns. He was like really on the come up at this time. Um, unfortunately. He's from, really doing a James Dean in the late 80s there. Yeah. Unfortunately, from there it goes to Young Guns 2 and Demon Wind and Dark Wind. <laughs> and extreme justice yeah it doesn't it doesn't go great for lou from there but um he's very compelling um and i really appreciate the way that um i don't know he he still he manages to seem very young which is something that i like need the actors who play students to do because it feels like really inappropriate to me in these movies when like 30 year old are like being very scary as students that that all that just feels really problematic and sort of like anti-student somehow anything else in this one can we tell people how we rate movies on be real we rate movies in two categories a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability so what are the four possible ratings i don't care Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. In my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I think that Stand and Deliver, while is, it's definitely the most charming of the four, I still don't know if that pushes it into good, good territory for me. I'm going to give it a good, bad. I think it uh, has some admirable quality, a couple really good performances. I don't know about the the rewatch factor. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, like, in that it's probably immoral to make movies like this, to continue to preach this narrative that one person can come in and totally upend a broken system right? uh, and persevere anything. I thought this movie was, like, pretty well made technically, and I really enjoyed going through it. I think there's a, a lot of good hang in there, like you were mentioning with the kids, you know, there's some fun scenes where you kind of like get to peek in their life. Like one girl's a waitress at her family's restaurant and there's an altercation there, which is sort of amusing, mm-hmm. you know, and then to see the one guy uh, who like doesn't believe that he's smart enough to do it, you know, pulls himself up. And instead of buying that new Trans Am and getting that summer job, he gets that AP credit. Uh, yeah. And like you mentioned, Lou Diamond Phillips is pretty compelling, and like all the sad scenes with his his grandmother uh, are pretty pretty moving. There's always that each one of these movies has that thing where there's like a procedural error where somebody's like, "Hey, my grandmother's fucking sick, and I had to take her to the doctor." But like the teacher doesn't care about that. And he's like, "You can't be late in life. You're five minutes late, mm-hmm. or like you you have to knock. Like these kids aren't. You have to learn how how the world works." And this movie, I think, plays with that in a way that it's not so, like, Michelle Pfeiffer eye roll. Yeah. Inevitably. So I think this one is a good, good, with the asterisks of, I think the whole, I mean, not to spoil this episode of Be Real, but I think we're going to get to the place where these movies are just inherently problematic because of, like, what their narratives are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you giving this one a good good? I'm going to give it a good good. That's nice. I, it's, it's, it's good to start there. Um... All right. Next year, Lean on Me. Lean on Me, 89. The dedicated but tyrannical Joe Clark is appointed to the principal of a decaying inner city school in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, He is determined to improve by any and all means. This is a chance for us to make some changes. Go in and see if we can turn this thing around. I mean, nobody else wants the job. East Side High was out of control. And then Joe Clark took over. Take out your pencils and write. I want the name. Every hoodlum, drug dealer, and miscreant on my desk by noon today. They called him crazy. They used to call me crazy, Joe. Well, now they can call me Batman. Crazy for padlocking the doors. You know me 30 years. You know what I would do. Crazy for changing the rules. I want all of you to look at this slovenly, sloppy boy here. As an example of how not to dress. But Joe Clark was only crazy about one thing. The kids he cared about. You mess up just once and you're out of here. I'll help you carry on. You are here for one reason. One reason only. This movie is directed by John G. Alvinson, who directed the first Rocky movie. Directed Karate, Karate Kid. Kid. Hell yeah. John G., my takeaway is that Unlike, I think, a lot of these other directors, he certainly has a way with, like, Hollywood bullshit, um, which is, I think, kind of why this movie stuck in people's minds. And Morgan Freeman was, um, you know, in part, like, launched into a late-blooming star. This, like, is the Morgan Freeman role, I think, for a lot of people. It's the same year as Glory, and it's definitely what, you know, pre-Shawshank is what, you know. It was a good year for Morgan Freeman. Yeah. But that being said, the directorial style you're referencing or circling around is mostly just shooting montages, right? 
Well, yeah. I mean, and Hollywood bullshit being like that it all culminates in like a spectacle around a pretty perfect pop song. Um, like just trying to absolve. The titular lean on me? Yeah. And, you know, just the way that Morgan Freeman like is constantly has the gas pedal down on his performance and never gives that up. Like it, this, I, I think it's a bit of a con, but I think it's like why the movie is like affected people. It's funny because as seminal a movie, this is for Morgan Freeman's career. Like he's not known for playing this character. Not at all. You know, he's typically very quiet and like chooses his words very carefully. And in this one, like you said, like he's at like a Nicolas Cage level of excitement throughout this whole film. Mm-hmm. When Robert Giammi is on screen and there's that scene in the courthouse uh, after that hearing, he, I mean, that is an incredible scene, just back and forth, just for about 10 minutes. And then the, of course, you know, the reconciliation of these two alpha males having butt heads for long enough being like, all right, let's get something to eat. I think the key line there I wrote down is, uh, Joe, if you're so hot on discipline, start by accepting some of mine, which is indeed nice. Um, but let's talk about, as we mentioned, I think in the first movie where Jaime gets sort of like one bad apple in the class, uh, in the first 10 minutes of this, Joe Clark's rounding up 300 kids and telling them, uh, you know, you're 14 and you got to figure something else out at this point. It's maybe we could start even a pace behind that because one of the most curious things about this movie is how it puts accurate critiques of Joe Clark in the mouths of the other character. The things that he's doing are tyrannical, authoritarian, fascist. Take your pick. Bad leadership. It's all true. All the things they all say. So it's like in there, which makes me think that the movie does know it, but like the movie directed by John G. Alvinson that ends with uh, everybody chanting Joe's name. It's so very much on his side. I really do think um, that if the chief from where in the world is Carmen San Diego had spent maybe more time lobbying the school board and less time chasing down Carmen San Diego, perhaps the public would have seen how much a tyrant Joe Clark actually was. That's Lynn Thigpen you're talking about, who plays uh, That's right. Leona Barrett. Um, That's the only other thing I know her from, but she's so iconic that it, yeah, it is weird where the movie has no sympathy for her whatsoever, and every character they can find like calls her some sexist epitaph by the end of it. Um, it's weird that she doesn't like have a scene with her fucking son, yeah. or that like her son uh, could be one of the kids that he's always picking on or something, Mm. but it's like a total disconnect where she's outraged, but you don't see like what her kid is like enough to understand his place in the food chain. And then she just becomes like a weird political operator. It's kind of funny that we categorize this in inspirational teacher dramas. Cause I actually think it's politics have more to do with like eighties vigilante movies um, where it's just like, the the social safety net in the system is so wrecked that the audience or portrayed as so wrecked of course that the audience has no choice but to side with the tyrant because that's that's the thing that happens is like you see the 
the mayor and you see Mrs. Barrett and it's like, if your other option is the rifest municipal corruption, then like you're going to want to choose door one with Joe Clark. Right. But it's so brutally unnuanced. <laughs> and it's interesting because it almost seems like the script is a more nuanced story. Like you even have that scene where the Latina students come up to him and they're like, hey, you're doing a lot of great stuff for the black students here, but right. you have done literally nothing for us or the white students here. Like, is there something we're missing? And he's like, I'll see you at seventh period. And then never addresses that. And I almost think that there is like a different version of this story that's directed to show the people that maybe didn't benefit from, because that's the thing. I mean, if you're talking about statistics, like that's the funny thing about both Stan and Deliver in this movie is that like you're talking about moving numbers around to like convey a certain triumphant narrative. Well, of course, if you like cut out the bottom 300 students of your school, the average test scores are going to go up. Mm -hmm. So it's so strange to me that... This movie, like you said, is not very nuanced in looking at like what the cost was. And then at the end, it's just one woman with a bullhorn being like, hey, this guy's super corrupt. And everyone else being like, fuck you. <laughs> we, a movie we kind of batted around um, talking about here was Bad Education, the HBO Corey Finley directed movie with Hugh Jackman. And I kind of wanted... Just more, it's it's just baffling to me that there's no peek behind the curtain with Joe Clark, because it is a it's all a performance. It's all, um, you know, this is having a deleterious effect. You're such a slovenly, sloppy boy. You, Sam's, you should kill yourself. Like all, yeah, it's let so me take you up to the roof <laughs> and encourage you to jump off. You can't tell the students to kill themselves. Um, no, but you, uh, sir, have gone too far. But Bad Education does such a great job in obviously like a different um, socioeconomic setting with different priorities of showing how this sort of like principal as ringleader, um, how they're, you know, what is real behind that and what is not. And this movie right. is almost like an anti-character study. There's no moment where Joe Clark is like, you know what? I I've I've had one too many and I am going to confide in my friend how like I'm pretty tired and I'm not sure what I am doing is right. It's just not in there. It's an anti-character study. Right. Which is so weird for a movie that begins with a prologue showing this yes. character 20 years earlier so and then literally weird. giving us no information about the preceding 20 years other than this guy is a totally different person. And then you see him ever so briefly as the principal at an elementary school and everyone's like hi mr clark and he's like hi kids i like you and then he goes to school the next day and he's just like lewis gossett and officer and a gentleman right yeah it is a very weird pivot to being like a somewhat you know affable if anonymous administrator at an elementary school to you know yeah being this like brutal dictator have who, we said what else I he mean, does he, chaining the doors and shit yeah he chains the doors i mean in his defense it's because like the school you know all of the wire season four has like become like a drug sales hot point mm -hmm. and like the lunch areas like that you see in early scenes people just bring in like suitcases full of narcotics so his thought is that like we has to lock the doors so these unwanted people can't get in uh 
because even if they locked them from the outside, they'd have like people on the inside pushing the doors open. So they need mm-hmm. to lock them from the inside, uh, which is, of course, not up to code. Neither, I think, is his like private security detail. <laughs> yeah, he's got these brown shirts that like run around doing his dirty work, shouting code 10 if the fire department's afoot. The funny thing is that in real life, Joe Clark never got the test scores up and was fired. Wait, really? Education scores had not substantially improved, which still resulted in it being taken over by the state one year after his departure. Incredible. <laughs> Thank you, Hollywood. This is what I love about these like myth-making revisionist histories. Where of like this actually doesn't work. So like why are we celebrating yeah. a story like this? I don't know how much more we need to say about Lean on Me. Of all of these movies, this is the one that kind of made me go like, yeesh. Um, and I don't know if it's Morgan Freeman's fault. We we talked at the be we t- I think we talked off the air about how the the music cue of Welcome to the Jungle at the beginning of again, it's just like 30-year-old actors like pretending to be kids, being really scary, ripping each other's clothes off, like so many fights, um, just a ridiculous amount of carnage um, while Guns N' Roses' Welcome to the Jungle plays and you look at a largely black student body. No, thank you. Unbelievable. I also think this movie's a tough watch, like in 2020, when we're hyper aware of authoritarians. Because um, it almost yeah. seems like the thing that we're aiming for here, you know, isn't really. I don't know. We're not deconstructing the system here. We're just forcing people through a system that doesn't work, you know? And like, really, what Joe Clark is able to do is shame people enough into like doing the thing that society dictates they need to do uh in many cases that's just like pass this test and move on with their lives but then like there's even that really troubling uh exchange he has with the young woman who he's known since she was like in kindergarten or whatever who gets pregnant and his response to her being pregnant is and i quote you women bringing babies into this world just to prove you can do something like and, like, of course, because there's, like, an upbeat score behind it, it's, like, Joe Clark just, like, calling it like it is. <laughs> but it's, like, it's, he's not. He's, he's like, I mean, there's a bigger thing in, at play here than simply two scenes later that young woman calling out the boyfriend that she has that didn't use protection. And then we all right. get a big laugh. And then Joe's free. Yeah, they're all kind of fresh coat of paint movies. Um, they are. They're They're sort of... Yeah, they're like uh, extreme makeover movies, but mm-hmm. they're not deconstructing the system in a way that... I mean, there's like a whole wealth of movies that are kind of a response to this that maybe we can do at a later date, uh, but that really like critique what a teacher who believes this or an administrator who believes their ability or their power to change everything overnight with no compromise... Uh, so it's just sort of a fallacy. Wait, what goes in that category in your mind? I would say that like half Nelson is kind of like a satire of that where you have like this well-intentioned high student debt, you know, heroin addict thinking he has something to teach these black kids about racism. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. You know, I think freedom writers still might be a little too 
Freedom Riders Unironic. is just Dangerous Minds, <laughs> but with the hip-hop. <laughs> Lean on Me is certainly more entertaining than the movie we're about to talk about next, but I think that Lean on Me is a bad, bad. I'm going to give it a bad good. Yeah. I think Morgan Freeman is highly entertaining. If you can get over like what is happening on screen and its larger political connotations it's just funny to watch morgan freeman yell at people for an hour and 48 minutes uh there's worse ways to spend your time and this is really i would say the lightest of the four here to tell us how this category of movies kind of holds up and doesn't and also uh give us a perspective on teaching that's a little more real than hollywood's version of joe clark Let's go now to our two guests from Black Teacher Project. So joining the podcast now, it's Dr. Misha Mosley, the founder and director of Black Teacher Project, and Kia Walton, who is a sixth grade math teacher at Oakland's Elmhurst United Middle School and a fellow of the project. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. So before we dive in, I, I kind of just want to do a check-in What's it like being a teacher in the dawn of the fall semester 2020? It, uh, it's, a, it's an appropriate question. I think it's a, what a lot of people are wondering. Like, usually when I say I'm a teacher, people are like, oh, okay, cool. But now they're like, oh, my God, what does it mean to be a teacher right now? One thing is that hours are very different because, like, we're trying to support students getting to tech, like, at all costs. So um, kids are calling me at night at night, uh, like, 7 in the morning, Um there it's really refreshing though because I think kids are very hungry for school so in the same way like last year I think they're ready to be in school but I think they're also navigating their own disappointment around just not being able to be in person and they want a ton of kid time um it's hard um it's super challenging but it feels like we can't afford to have this year not start strong um we can't afford to have more months of not learning so it's a it's a righteous mission is what it feels like so I want to talk about Black Teacher Project, and I was hoping maybe I could introduce the listening audience to it um, through the motto of the organization, which is that every child deserves a Black teacher. Uh, Misha, can you um, maybe unpack what BTP is all about from that perspective? Absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting that we started talking about our current context because we believe that Black teachers offer powerful insights around what's necessary to transform education and that those insights should be shared with young people across race. And so in this moment, everyone's talking about reimagining, talking about school being different. Let's make it more equitable. These are things that Black teachers have been talking about for decades. And so for us, we want to expand the narrative that Black teachers are here to support the learning and success of Black students. That is absolutely true. And that expansion is about any students that Black teachers have. And really, even if you don't have the gift of having a Black teacher yourself, we want the leadership, the brilliance, the excellence of Black teachers to touch and impact every student um, out there, really. And so when we say every child deserves a Black teacher, we mean that understanding of inequity in this country that Black teachers have, because we've had to figure out how to graduate from college, minimally, how to graduate from college in a system that never wanted us to do that. 
Then we go into a field where many of us have been harmed. And then inside of that field, field try to inspire others, often teaching curriculum that's not particularly relevant or interesting. So all of the things that Black teachers are navigating, to be able to, to bundle that and say, you young person, I see you're brilliant. I love you. I care about you, right? Understanding and appreciating your race, whether it's Black or not Black, but more importantly, what I'm up to with you is about transforming the world, and it's going to take both of us. So we want, we want every student to have uh, access to that kind of brilliance. I was wondering, especially in these times, whether it be workers' rights in light of COVID or the, the profound moment in re-energization around Black Lives Matter that's going on, when students have classes with Black educators, do you feel like there is a greater chance for just solidarity among kids and teachers and their community writ large? Um, I think... Um it really matters on the teacher. Um, and I, I've always liked that BTP is, um, it's about like honoring the excellence that black educators bring and, and honing that and, and then spreading that. And I, I don't think it's about a pass. Oh, you're black, great, you must be great. That, that's not it at all. And so I think that it's, it's a false assumption um, to believe that if you get someone with the right skin tone and the right uh, you know curl pattern, that they are going to automatically connect with a kid that looks like them. And um, I think done well, yeah, I think that there are folks who share uh, backgrounds with some of our students who are black, who are also black, and they can lean into those to be like, I, I hear your tone. I know that's not a real attitude. That's just how you're talking. Or you can um, have compassion and, and act with empathy in a way that's different because you know that this kid's probably gotten talked to seven times today and six of those were negative. And just you keep that awareness from like your own lived experience as a black uh, student. Um, and then also just like watching, you just see how other students, uh, how other teachers treat them. And you notice who's in the hallways, you notice who's in the office. And it, it kind of impresses upon you that these students are targeted one way or another. And whether it should be our calling or everyone's calling, it, it the, the response of a responsible educator is going to be to create solidarity, going to be to shine light on that child and say, you matter, you exist, you are important, your, your journey in life is valuable, and I'm just one step on the way to remind you of your full self. For a lot of Black teachers who teach in predominantly white spaces or spaces where there are not a lot of students of color, I think there's also a solidarity opportunity in that those young people that may be the only black adult they have in their life. And so, you know, there's a, as you know, many of us, there's race work to be done. And just the act of teaching um, allows you the opportunity to really work toward racial justice. Because when folks are in those formative years, even if kids don't have friends who are black, they have the opportunity to have that black teacher help shape their understanding of the world. So I think, you know, again, going back, to, to every child deserves a black teacher, that, that solidarity work, uh, as Kia said, depending on the teacher, it can be really powerful. We believe that it's also important. Some black teachers have come through the system and unfortunately have not had a critical lens. And so then they'll be the, you know, do as I do and everything will be great. When in fact, no, not necessarily. 
right? And so we really want to make sure that folks have a chance to, to have a deeper analysis of a racialized experience in school. Kia, you mentioned earlier that you'd been in the classroom a couple years by the time you came to Black Teacher Project. I'm curious, uh, as a as a member of of cohort one, what um, what did you <laughs> what did you get out of it? Um, a lot of malarkey. Um, no, it's an amazing program. It's. Uh, um, I think what I get out of it, and I'm glad you're asking because there's. There's ways that, like, I try to answer it so that people who uh, will give money will be like, oh, okay, that makes sense on this data point. But I think what it gives me is, like, this motivation. Um, it refreshes my why. It clarifies the why of what I'm doing. And it also, like, resituates me in community so I'm not doing this by myself. Like, teaching is already a mad, isolating job. It, like, dusts me off and it shines me up again so, like, I can be my best self for kids. And kids, they, like, they don't care about a strong lesson plan. Like, that helps. And that definitely supports the work. But kids, first and foremost, they care about that energy. Who are you in this space? Do you treat them with respect? Their barometer is so sensitive. And BTP was this constant reminder. You are whole. You can, you are well. And you also have a duty to be whole and well for these other children that are coming after you. And um, I never, I think I told you this before we started recording, but it's a big ask to say, hey, would you participate in something for three years that takes more of your time as a teacher? even though Misha was able to like not make us work without pay, it's um, still one of those things where you volunteer and you support because the work is so, is so well done and it's so necessary and there's not another space like BTP. So I thought I would ask you both, given the, just sort of the, the mission of Black Teacher Project, when was the first time you as a child had a Black educator and when was the first time you saw one depicted in movies or TV? So I think my first, now what's interesting is I should already know who my first black teacher was, given what I do for a living. Uh, I believe it was Miss Harding. No, it was Mr. Rock in ninth grade math. High school is the point. I had a math teacher uh, and an English teacher. On screen, that's a little harder to tell. I want to say that, um, Somewhere in the, the lean on me era, mm-hmm. um, you know, there were there were black. Te- Joe Clark was a principal, but there were black teachers in that in that story and in that school. I'm not sure that I can think of, you know, I'd always heard about to serve with love. My mother loves Sidney Poitier, but I never I saw other films, but I never saw that one. Yeah, that's what comes to my mind. I have to give it a little more thought. Real quick. Can I ask? So when you said high school, I, Am I inferring that in your mind, like that was maybe a little late to have your first black educator? Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, uh, I grew up uh, being bused to white school. So I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood and in the seventies and eighties. And so it was very, you know, um, uh, your child can get a better life in this gifted and talented program by getting up Mm -hmm. and getting on this bus and going across town. And so there were other black students who were on the bus with me, but none of us lived in the neighborhood. Um, and so it didn't surprise me that I didn't have any black teachers given that context. But I, what ended up happening for me, uh, I went to a wonderful high school at Brooklyn Tech, the greatest high school in the world, as I like to say. Um, but I went there during a time that's very different than the way it is now. It was 33% black in terms of the student population. And 
I got to experience Black academic excellence in that environment. And I wonder had I had that in elementary school or even middle school, what it would have meant for my identity as a student. I just knew I had to like do well so I didn't get in trouble. But it took me a while, it took me really in high school to, to own the combination of Blackness and, and academic excellence as part of a whole identity. Q, what about you? Same question. My first teacher, um, I, I, I do count my grandma as my very first teacher because she taught me how to read. Um, she was a reading specialist. And I mean, that setup was amazing. You learn how to read as a kid early on, you're like, you're just going to fly. Um, and after that, it was third grade Miss Simpson. And I remember that she kind of put us in groups. Um, and so there was a gifted and talented program, but before like fourth grade, you couldn't go to it. And so in third grade, she pulled us aside. And I remember we were doing long division on the board. I wasn't that great at it. Um, and the other kids were like doing coloring stuff and they were like, why are we? And I was like, oof, that's kind of weird. Um, but she did pull me aside. I don't think it was because I was black because there were a number of black students who were doing the um, the different, uh, the, like the differentiated work. And then after that, I was really trying to rack my brain. I don't, I don't remember having another one until college. Uh, my professor, Lisa Collins, who was phenomenal. Um, yeah, but they've been far and few between and it's weird because I actually didn't think about it until you asked me. What about seeing a black teacher in TV or movies? Uh, yes, so sorry. Oh, it's all good. Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act 2. That was my jam. <laughs> I remember, yeah, it was amazing. I remember though, it was my first year teaching. So, you know, I was like a bag of skin and bones, all tears, you know, mild depression, just, you know, the huge for first year teachers. Um, and I remember watching her after like one hard day, go back in and scratch the walls. And then all the kids just kind of tightened it up and got together. And I was like, that's not how it is. That's <laughs> what happens. That's not how you get a class together. And I remember just being crying, just crying, just feeling so, um, just feeling not seen, uh, not seen at, at all, not seen in the struggle, not seen, not even particularly as a black teacher, but just not seen in like what it means to struggle as a teacher in this district, in this state, in this nation, um, and in this larger world community. I, I want to talk about like some of the narratives from um, teacher movies, a lot of like dramas around teaching tend to be um, savior narratives. I suppose regardless of whether um, the the race of the teacher, like a lot of Hollywood dramas are like the teacher comes in and saves everyone. On the one hand, I'm imagining that you probably don't get into teaching if you don't believe in the transformative power of education, but also like what are the limits of of a savior narrative? So first and foremost, it uh, holds up the pillar of individualism that's a core tenet of white supremacy so that your success or failure depends on one person, whether that one person is you or that one person is someone else. And so in a collectivist culture, we understand the power of working together and succeeding together. And that is, you know, a uh, a, a history and a foundation that all human beings come from. So regardless of how we're racially categorized now, we all come from, it takes a village uh, because it took a village. <laughs> and so the savior uh, narrative really sets us up for what we're seeing in education today, where it's about your grades, your effort, your, and, and to the point where 
it took the turn of the 20th century where business and specifically tech was like, hey, could y'all do some group work? Because people don't know how to work together and it's really hurting our bottom line. So now we have group work. But let's be clear. We would have just kept on with the like, you do your little thing by yourself if that had worked. So I, I think it's part of a larger problematic narrative um, that for me just doesn't set us up for liberatory experiences and learning. Yeah, no, Misha, I'm really glad you framed it that way. I always love when you tie it back to white supremacy or like uh, white supremacist culture and, and, and all that, because I think living in it, I don't always see it. And so I'm like, oh, that's just the way it is. It's like, I will do a progress tracker and each kid will be here. And it's like, one thing is like, that's to help kids with accountability. The other thing is like, am I okay with 10 kids being behind? And the answer is no. But I think that that's, um, I just always appreciate when you frame it that way. Um, I think one thing that comes to mind is that with the savior narrative, my grandma always says, physician, heal thyself. And I think when you go into a classroom thinking that you're going to get these kids' character in line and you're going to make sure the parents are on top of it and you're going to fix their bad behavior, all that, you're not looking at what you need to do as a human being that was also raised in this culture. You're not looking at what you need to like unroot um, and do differently so that you're not recreating that harm or recreating these, um, these mindsets that don't support people's full growth and growth in community. Um, additionally, I think the, the actual impact on the individual teacher that bears the burden is that you have a lot of teacher burnout, a lot of teacher turnover, and you have people in the class who maybe should have retired because they uh, went in with, um, you know, bright eyes, but then they got hit with um, obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Um, and I think one thing about the movies is that a lot of these movies end positively. And I think that that's so false. And it sets this, like, the audience up, the larger non-teaching audience up to think, wow, if that teacher just tried a little harder, that teacher just did one more thing. And it's like, that teacher is in therapy and, like, really, you know, also can't afford it. Um, that, you know, like, that, it, it, there's so much um, harm done to an individual who's trying to, like, throw themselves to stop the cogs in the machine. Like, to sacrifice their own body to be the person that stops it. And it doesn't. It, this isn't a new narrative. It's not a new story. I mean, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, it's the same thing, maybe not 100. Um, but I think that it it wears people down and then it makes us not look at the larger structural changes that need to change. And it makes us think, well, what is that teacher doing or not doing? Um, yeah, I think it's all around not helpful. It's interesting you bring up just like the narrative arc of movies because I was thinking about this watching so many of them. So many of them are like the teacher gets to the new school on August 15th and things are like, this is unbearable. And then by May 31st, it's like, it's great because the movie has to do that. Um, and I just, from the teachers I know and from what I imagine, it just, it goes on and on. There's a next year and there's next year and you have to be ready and right for that too. There's no, I think that, does that kind of go to your point about resolution feeling sort of false? I think, yeah. So it, it's two things. I think that there's a false resolution because it's like, what problem was solved? Like now they can all sing in key. That's awesome. What's reading level like? Like what's housing like? What What's stable? Um, and then I think the other thing is that it also just kind of hides or just it, it erases the, the narrative of like what... Um, 
it just doesn't include like how do you how do you like over time maybe instead of doing a movie that's like from august 15th to may 31st we do like a longitudinal movie like what does it mean to be educated for 10 years how did you stay what are the things you have to sacrifice how do you look and see how someone manages to stay a teacher and um and like what do boundaries look like that's just never in a movie i've never seen a teacher say no i've just mm-hmm. never seen a teacher say i can't right now Unless they were like the the villain teacher who like always says no and doesn't care about kids. Misha, you mentioned uh, when you were working in New York some years ago, there was like a there was a educator movie night. Do you remember any of any titles that uh, jumped out as particularly uh, good or bad? Yeah, well, it was it was a plan. It was a plan for the Black Teacher Project. And uh, um We still might pull it off, but I will say that the movie that I wanted that inspired the idea. So it's a Marva Collins story. And it was about, you know, she started a school in her home um, and then it eventually expanded to be, you know, a larger school. But it was one of those things where I had heard about Marva Collins as a black teacher and kind of knew that she did important work, but hadn't one. I didn't know there was a movie. And I'm just like, there's a movie about a black teacher, <laughs> like, like really just about this black teacher and her story. And so I really wanted other, I'm very interested in black teachers learning the history of black teachers, because I feel like that, I feel like when we can see ourselves as part of a legacy, it can contextualize what's happening now. Um, and I feel like people sort of talk about the one room schoolhouse back in the day and before Brown versus the board of head, board of ed, and then cut to, today, hope you can figure it out. And there's a whole world in between. Um, And Marva Collins is part of that world in between. Uh, What I loved about it is that it, it told the story and Kia, when when Kia mentioned, you know, what's happening with housing, what's happening with stability, that story. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a total hero story. It's a total like savior narrative. Don't, don't mistake that. But it talks about the complexity of the village, of the neighborhood, of collective responsibility. So yes, there was a charismatic teacher at the helm, but the babies needed some food. The babies needed to to learn how to be with one another because no one was um, really teaching them um, interpersonal skills in the ways that would make them successful in school. So there's a whole uh, cultural aspect to understanding blackness relative to the kind of poverty that um, she was navigating and her and the, her students were navigating that I felt like was really important in that story and the struggle that she had systemically. So getting funds, getting getting uh, space, getting it approved, be, it being okay versus having to be underground and schools underground for a little bit, which to me is like our whole story. We got to do stuff we got to learn to read in the caves by candlelight because it's illegal. We've got to have the under underground school on the side because, you know, we're not adhering to the, to the standardized curriculum, even though we're outperforming on test scores. When I look at like the history of black independent schools, this was not that particular history, but it, it was akin to that and how we, our narrative around black education is often one of a deficit and we don't, learn the stories of academic excellence in and out of the system. Is there a story 
of a black educator that you would like to see told on screen. And if you can't think of anything specific, um, maybe just the quality of the experience that you'd like to see uh, in a teacher movie or a show centered around a teacher. I feel like I'm gonna run the risk of embarrassing um, one of your guests, Chance. Um, but I, I'm not just saying this. I think it'd be awesome to see a story about you, Misha. I, I think it would be amazing, honestly. Because I mean, like seeing you from your classroom, um, knowing that like one of the fellows in the program that you later started to respond to what you noticed in the classroom as a black teacher, um, creating a national network of teachers to support each other and then continuing to do that work with like different iterations and in such the values that you believe in, you're living them out and seeing that I've never seen a story like that. I've never seen a story where someone who was at the helm was trying to decenter themselves. And I've never seen um, someone do that with so much humility. And I, I think it would be an amazing story. The story of, of, and if that's a little much, maybe the story of like BTP, like where it came from and where, and where, where it's going. That's, thank you, Kia. Cause you know, I was going to say the story of you, <laughs> your story. Uh, so I think I would love to, to, to see a, a film about the complexities of black teachers, both in terms of race. So let's get out of the black white dichotomy. And in terms of the work of black teachers, because it's not simply being that inspirational person to the individual student that we've seen that story. We know that, but what's the story of the teacher who's like, you know what? This whole thing needs to shift. And I have a unique perspective as someone who's in the classroom every day who can tell you what I need and what students need to shift these outcomes. So I would love to see uh, a film that really gets to that. The last thing I'll say, it, it hadn't dawned on us, uh, those of us who, who, who initially uh, were organizing the Black Teacher Project, how many Black queer teachers are, are part of the project. And so, um, Kia alluded to the, my former student who's a fellow, who's a teacher in Richmond, California, Belinda, who is a black queer teacher. And uh, as she and I have sort of continued to iterate what Black Teacher Project is, her story of becoming a mom, right? Being a black queer mom, teaching in a predominantly Latinx community and trying to lead change, the impact that that had even on us, right? Now we have to have childcare at our meetings because there's a teacher who's navigating all of that. So I feel like the complexities of identity um, and what the work is are really, really important stories to tell, particularly in the 21st century, when people understand intersectionality, but what's the story of that, you know? That's a great answer. Um, Kia and Misha, this was uh, so enlightening and I really think uh, may, is gonna make the episode uh, so much better. So thank you both so much for your time and, and your insights and uh, this was great. Thanks. Thank you. That was great. I really like the idea and I hadn't considered it. And I listened to this interview before watching at least two of these movies, but the idea that having one central teacher changing things is like inherently a white supremacist thought. Yes. That had not occurred to me either. Um, 
it occurred to, it, it, the, these movies all struck me as white liberal fantasies in a way because just for sure how hollywood functions but um yeah i really was i think enlightened by misha and kia just talking about like collectivism is the answer here and community and solidarity and all of these movies really kind of go against that right no more than 1995's <laughs> dangerous minds thank you by the way to kia and misha that their time was so appreciated um dangerous minds is just your classic white savior movie it really is I love, I think the funniest thing about this movie at the top, well, A, of course it stars Michelle Pfeiffer, um, but B, the most interesting and totally underexplored facet of her character is the fact that she is an ex-Marine. It comes up on day It comes up constantly. It comes up in like maybe every other scene where people are like, oh, you get it. You're a Marine. But like, she doesn't have any special training or anything like nothing about her being a Marine, like has given her extra whatever to teach the difference between Dylan Thomas and Bob Dylan. This movie has the funniest and stupidest concept. I think of like what it is to teach because she's just like, what I do is I like gamify and trick the students into learning who are those kids rejects from hell no the kids with high iqs and low grades all you got to do is get their attention once a marine always a marine most of my students don't even know what a verb is if you want to pass all you have to do is try. Haven't seen you guys in a week. Thought maybe you got lost on your way to class. Wanted to help you find your way back. You gotta be crazy to stay here and teach these program classes. Why do you stay? Why do I smoke? I'm crazy. So Michelle Pfeiffer plays Luann Johnson, who kind of shows up sort of randomly, just like looking for work at the behest of uh, Mr. Griffith, played by George Sunsa, uh, who doesn't yet know that he's <laughs> going to be killed in Basic Instinct. Um, no, he knows. It's 95. He's already dead. Oh, he's dead already. My bad. I got my ears confused. Yeah. He <laughs> no, doesn't know no, that he's he going to have his whatever ripped open in Crimson Tide as Cobb. Holy shit. Um, but he brings his friend Luann to to school where he teaches in Belmont, California, which is a sort of a San Francisco satellite city. Um, and Robin Bartlett, who you just mentioned is like the assistant principal who like sort of forces Luann, who's very optimistic and green, like into an immediate, uh, I think it's an English lit position presumably, but I also want to talk about how they just refer to it as second period. Like this is the second period curriculum over and over again. Um, but she doesn't, she's not a teacher. She never got her teacher no, certification. She's not qualified. And uh, the assistant principal is like, well, we can certainly get you emergency certified if you start tomorrow. Because there's this, uh, they call them like this academy group of students who I believe you see in the opening are bust in to the school. And they're largely students of color. 
um, and they're sort of outlined as the underachieving, troubling group of students um, who have like bullied, according to the movie, several teachers into quitting. Um, and yeah, they just trick Luanda getting in there by offering her $24,000 a year, which, holy shit. Yeah. This movie's interesting because it's a, it seems like a mixture of that, like, limousine liberal fantasy of, you know, the white teacher connecting with the students of color. But then, like, it only knows that maybe students of color are just, like, living some version of the outsiders that just hasn't updated at all. So you, like, have these characters who, for whatever mumbled reason, they, like, have a, a you know, a, a target on their back because of someone, you know, chasing someone else's girl. Right. And, like, the last time that they, you know, rode their hot rods around, somebody got pinks. And, like, suddenly, yeah, yeah. it's like the it's like the plot of Grease and... Wade Dominguez, R.I.P. Wade Dominguez, who right. died like two years after this movie was released. But as Emilio, who like just like wears a leather jacket and like is maybe a drug dealer or maybe he just had a misunderstanding with these other guys, the one that she goes on a date with, lol. Um, but yeah, and then there's this like sort of third act contrivance where Emilio's like, I've got a bounty on me. And his girlfriend's like, oh, no, tell the teacher. We'll fix it. And then they, she, like, he, Emilio lives at her house for a couple of days. And she's like, tell Courtney B. Vance. Like, he'll make it better. He's the principal. And also the navigator from Hunt for Red October. Oh, sure. And Courtney B. Vance is great. Uh, his part is complete shit in this movie, but he's a great actor. This is a terrible part. Do you think what upset him about people knocking or not knocking on his door as a principal you meant to make was a pings it, joke. <laughs> it it distracted him from hearing the splashes or the pings or the grinding of gears in other submersibles. Yeah. I'm joking. Cordy B. Vance is Mr. Grady, Mr. Grandy, who is this totally two-dimensional character who's just supposed to represent like process and bureaucracy and somehow it's this feels like the kind of rule where they're like nervous about being called racist. So they're yeah. like, we're going to have a character in here who's kind of shitty and is also black to show you that like, it's not just the white people keeping the black people down. Right. But it's such a flimsy role and it causes such unbelievable tumults. His like lack of empathy for anyone other than the Joe Clarkian kind of you must follow the rules or else mm -hmm. uh, whomever that is uh, that. Yeah. That causes the back half drama of this movie, which otherwise like doesn't have a ton of conflicts or drama. There's no like test they're going for. They're not trying to like get out of school. I mean, it's all the canned problems of, violence and pregnancy and drugs that we've seen in the other two and we'll continue to see but I, I texted you about this i almost feel like i missed the part where like she connected with them that yeah. she's like made fun of for 45 minutes thinks about quitting uh gives them candy bars and like has them read mr tambourine man and then like the movie's over 
So we should point out too, I was kind of heartened to see that like people weren't falling for this at the time either. No. Like Ebert called this shit out like perfectly and pointed out that the real Miss Johnson you like bonded with the students over over hip hop. And while that as we already joked about Freedom Riders, while that is also a corny ass fucking thing to do just do it like at least have the bravery to like engage with the things that kids are interested in like they don't give a shit about bob dylan that's not any different than dylan thomas to them um yeah there's not a ton that i loved about this movie uh i love the weird dated things about it like how many teachers smoke like just anywhere yeah yeah it's like seeing smoking everywhere oh my god everywhere and like Again, you th- he's like got to get diagnosed with lung cancer by the end of this movie for Why the amount of times that he's so coughing. <laughs> Why is he coughing so much if he doesn't have lung cancer? Just do the basic shit. Don't like set up tropes and then do nothing with them. That's and where's worse. Courtney B. Vance's apology for being so Come rigid on. to this system as to fucking kill one of his students? Yeah. This movie's just got like some real basic shit where like every time it needs something to happen, it like cuts to her at her non-existent home life. But she's just like in a robe with wine after the first night reading Assertive Discipline, which I was like, yeah, that's a good, it's good. You should read. What was, uh, was, uh, How to Get Your Students to Respect You for Dummies not available? What, what? Yeah, someone had checked that out already. Okay. Um, I think it's really interesting with movies like this when you have... It's a teacher-student movie of any stripe. Uh, you have the predominantly kid actor casts and either it's like, oh, this is early Ethan Hawke. Or like, oh, this is early Lou Diamond Phillips. And then some of them are like, this is no. early early these people who had guest spots on ER. This is middle nobody. <laughs> this is middle nobody. <laughs> Dangerous Minds, I think it's safe to say, is uh, a bad dad. Yeah. And absolutely the teacher movie that Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson would have made uh, and should be thrown on the waste pile of valiant but ultimately misguided attempts to glamorize public education. I'm in 100% agreement. It's uh, it's nonsense. It's not competently made. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is not good in it, um, even though I think she's a good actor. Uh, bad, bad. Oh, also, John N. Smith, the director, that sounds like the fake name you put on a movie when you don't want anyone to know you directed it. No, that's a real guy, though. I'm aware, but <laughs> tell that, no, me I'm I, wrong. I totally agree with you. Okay. That's like when Barry Levinson like doesn't want to put his name on something. Right. My name is Clarice Precious Jones. I want to be on the cover of a magazine. I wish I had a light-skinned boyfriend with real nice hair. But first, I want to be in one of them BET videos. You're a dummy. Don't nobody want you. Don't nobody need you. School ain't gonna help none. Take your ass down to the welfare. You're 16, you're still in junior high school, and you're pregnant with your second child. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about home? But you're gonna have to talk to somebody if you want your check, sweetie. 
2009's Precious, uh, in New York City's Harlem, circa 1987, an overweight, abused, illiterate teen who is pregnant with her second child, parenthetically by her father, uh, is invited to enroll in an alternative school in hopes that her life can head in a new direction. Synopsis, uh, you don't have to put it on Precious that way. Come on. You you don't. Um, this is based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Weird thing about this movie is, or the book, is that so the book Push was released by Sapphire. Then the movie was called Precious based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Then when they released the movie tie-in edition of the book, they like re-registered the ISBN as Precious based on the novel Push by Sapphire. But that was the novel. So the novel was called something that it it had already been called. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, those are some weird industry entanglements. It's just push. Right it's it, it it's the push that we're all talking about. You don't need no, to call yeah. it precious again. I want to kind of pull apart like what this movie's actually like from the reputation of it, and maybe they're not that different. But I feel like the reputation of it makes it even worse because the the synopsis you just read is like the only way IMDb could think to sum up the movie was like how bad her life is. And if you're starting a story from there and or starting to market a story from there, Jesus Christ, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, the pitch for this movie does sound like Liam Neeson trying to do improvisational comedy. <laughs> uh, but also, like, the product itself is not not that. I'm riddled with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the movie has some moves to make the story more dimensional. But this is the movie that inspired that 30 Rock joke where Tracy Jordan stars in the Oscar bait movie, Hard to Watch. Yeah, I think you know what you're getting into from the the reputation of this movie, um, that it will be something potentially triggering and something that's going to deal with some pretty heavy and visualized uh, stuff. And the movie like doesn't really waste any time in getting at just how rough Precious's home life is, uh, including a, I mean, not overly graphic, but definitely a depicted depiction of rape. Um, mm-hmm. And then really what's even i think more upsetting is the physically abusive relationship with her mother uh played by monique uh in a role that she was uh nominated for an oscar she won the oscar she won the one yeah yeah the movie's directed by uh lee daniels who's directed movies like uh the butler and shadow boxer but is uh most successful as a producer uh co-creating Empire and the Star, which was spun off of that. Gabby Sidibe plays Precious. Um, and then the teacher character, Blue Rain, is played by Paula Patton. So we'll talk about that relationship a lot. But then you've got some some unexpected, and I would argue very good performances from Mariah Carey and Lenny Kravitz, uh, which really come out of nowhere for me. But So let's talk about 
the way this movie is made because it's kind of curious to me and sort of hazy and I don't think necessarily helps the experience. Lee Daniels, uh, inspired by some of the way the story is told in the book, has these kind of interstitial, either magical realist or just sort of fantasized things where Precious imagines herself on a red carpet or at a magazine shoot with a boyfriend that she doesn't have or imagining her and her mother uh, speaking French in the black and white movie that's on television. And on the one hand, I think that those that strategy is crucial and legible as a way to show you the interiority and the creativity of this character's mind. I but then when we come back to her life, which is, you know, 85 to 90% of the movie, um it's a lot of handheld docu-realistic camera footage that makes things look pretty gross. And um, I think that Gabby Sidibe gets a little, like, othered by the perspective of the movie. Like, a lot of it's not from her perspective. Um, and I, it just it left me being like, either make the much more understated Kelly Reichert version of this young woman's challenges, or Life of Pyatt, where this person's mind is so much more interesting and compensating for the things that are going on in their life that they transpose and project fantasies in different ways but this movie stuck between and it didn't do it for me do you think Gabby Sidibe and Monique are good in the movie oh yeah I mean I think their chemistry is electric uh and I think that that scene at the end where the mother externalizes all this stuff that she's been dealing with for 20 years uh Mm is you know i mean absolutely worthy of that supporting actor oscar uh you do wish that maybe instead of a photograph or a montage like that that goes into the fantasy that you could see just like some moments of tenderness you know between these people but i guess if that's not there it's just not there but that also just makes it very really difficult to watch Yeah, you're right. That breakdown is really interesting and sort of the way that she cannot stay focused in the de facto therapy session. I mean, keeps like remembering uh, just these sort of extraneous details, I think. It is interesting. I just... Why is that motion, that that narrative maneuver not Precious's maneuver? Right. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is I think the the like the least you know pointed arc of this movie is precious's you know i mean she's the person that the most stuff just sort of happens to and not to spoil it but i think like the final turn of the the curse of her father so to speak mm-hmm. uh i mean is like like um tragedy porn right to the extreme right but let's talk about the since we've talked in the context of the just teacher student relationship for the other three movies like what do you think of well i guess just like the the quality of the relationship in the movie but also the you know maybe morality of the what paula Patton's trying to trying to give to precious or assess or push or whatever the thing is 
So I think where it kind of ends up is like about where you'd expect. Certainly just being engaged with this movie, it feels it feels good that when Precious is with her second child on the street, you realize that like, thank God Blue Rain will just like do whatever it takes to to help her get housed. Um I but I think actually the best moment of acting from Paula Patton is these movies do such a weird and or absent job of engaging with the fact that like teaching is a job and there are like methods there are methods to it um and the closest like student teacher relationships like still come from like how good is that teacher doing at their job while being flexible with their students it's not you know they don't become your best friend they don't become your you know undying drop everything forever advocate so i actually think the best moment is at the beginning where she first gets to class and blue rain is asking all the students you know tell me something that you're good at tell me your name tell me why you're here that kind of thing and precious finally speaks up and she talks about how she never talks in class and blue rain's like so you're not so you're talking now how does that make you feel and precious goes here it makes me feel here and paula Patton actually turns away because she's the character is breaking the character is like about to to lose it but comes back turns around basically and is like all right everyone get out your notes which is just like she knows that she can't break in front of the kids it's great and to deflect that breakage to almost that like joe clarky and like here's an assignment do it right now yeah yeah so i think there's i mean i i i think paula Patton is an okay actor for the most part but that moment was uh was pretty inspired i thought what do you think yeah i think she's i think she's good in this and there's an interesting i think the production design is good in this one as it sort of shows that even the people with their stuff together are still like looking like they're not that much higher on the socioeconomic rungs you know and paula Patton sort of holding it together and making the calls and like finding housing for this person, you know, but also like, where's her lunch coming from? You know, like yeah. how many seasons has she owned that winter coat? Mm-hmm. You know, which I think is really interesting. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a performance where she can shine. I really think in terms of the teacher question, I almost have to look at like Mariah Carey as that, like, the no nonsense administrator akin to, you know, the one from stand and deliver who said like, don't get their kids hopes up, you know, if they fail, like they're fucked forever, you know, but Mariah Carey just wants to miss Weiss. She just like wants to get the answers of what happened. And it's a nice parallel between her and Paula Patton because Paula Patton's very touchy feely, very, I love you. We're here for you, whatever, write in your notebook. I'll write you letters and Mariah Carey is the system. I guess they're both the system, but Mariah Carey sort of proves through her performance and that character arc that the system can work if people work it. Like if you focus on what is this home situation life, you have to tell me about your relationship with your mother. You have to tell me about the relationship with your father. Like if I hear certain things, I can help you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's interesting to show them as the sort of two poles on this spectrum of how people, the net in which these pe- these kinds of characters get caught. It's a good point. 
I really like Mariah Carey in this movie. Um, She's great. I barely recognized her at first. Um, and also, I just, I love her. She's playing like this, um, you know, this this deep Bronx tenor. Um, and knowing that she has like four octaves of range on top of that is like, good for you for <laughs> making this your character's speaking voice and pulling it yeah. off. The closer and closer we got to the Christmas holidays, I'm like, is there going to be a moment? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah Lenny Kravitz I mean he's only in two scenes really but I think one of the best scenes in the movie is him not being phased by literally five young women throwing themselves at him I think that is the best scene in the movie too I mean I I was just dying for some real um you know friendship dynamics between these girls and when mm-hmm. they all come to visit her and take turns poking at slash hitting on nurse John I that was probably the most enjoyable scene of the movie for me too. More Nurse John. I think unfortunately this movie kind of is exactly what you think it is at the end of the day, even as we sort of talked about its different dimensions and things that don't come through in the marketing and and the reputation. Um, I wish it could go further with things like when they visit the museum and she kind of has the imagery playing in her mind of of Shirley Chisholm uh, running for president and you see Malcolm X and it's just like, what? yeah, what is her consciousness of the world? Everybody has some. Like, what can we get a little more out of this character? I really wonder if that's in the book. Um, but at the end of the day, it is kind of just hard to watch. It is a quintessential good-bad. Um, and it is a movie yeah. that I just haven't heard anyone... If you were like a, a high school Oscar nerd, like I was, it was just like, oh, Precious is one of these 10 movies or whatever. And nobody has talked about it one moment since. And this is kind of why. Yeah, it's it's oppressiveness in terms of the watch. Uh, I maybe has kept it from being more rewatched. Uh, but I think Gabby Sinebe is just like so... She is very, like, compelling to watch. She gives a really interesting physical performance. And there's just, like, there's something, like, magical about her face that is just so fabulous to watch. And, like, how the way her face sort of takes in these emotions and what she shows and what she doesn't show yeah, is, like, really the magic trick that this movie has. But it's just, like you wish that more scenes weren't like her and like a stunt baby falling downstairs. You sure you know, do. like you, you wish there was just like a little bit more joy in this story. And not to say that you'd like want to make it the kind of education movie that we're railing against here. And our guests were railing against too, where like everything gets tied up neatly at the end. But I do think that what these stories can do is give us a little bit of hope you know, that whatever end of the spectrum we're on, whether, you know, seeing it as a kid and like, am I going to get through this, whatever your issue may be, or as like a young, you know, hungry person in the working world thinking about that balance of like doing good as opposed to making money and like working within a system, you know, there, there are lessons to be taught here and there's hope to be given. Um, but I just wish all these movies had more joy. I'm with you. It was like a good be real category, but not not good movies. There's a reason this kind of movie like isn't and shouldn't be made anymore. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean I think that one of 
the big takeaways, at least for me, you know, of this humongous reckoning we're doing about race in this country is looking at the myths that, you know, mainstream culture sort of tells us about what these roles are supposed to be, you know, what these occupations are supposed to entail. And yeah, for me, really like having the privilege to look back at these movies and like call bullshit. Uh, I mean, that's, I mean, that's one of the pleasures of being able to review movies. To all of our teacher friends and colleagues out there, hang in, stay strong. Uh, I hope you can, can still be safe and sane. Thank you so much again to Dr. Misha Mosley and Kia Walton for coming on the show and unpacking some of the real life angles here. Um, Noah, my friend, always a pleasure to talk to you here on the Playlist Podcast Network. Yeah, great to great to see your face for a time. Great to discuss motion pictures. Uh, and I, you know, I imagine before too long we'll be doing it again. Here's open. I got the teacher's blues. Those blues are on my mind. I got the teacher's blues. Those blues are on my mind. Cause inflation's got me. Done left me far behind